Hello, I'm Frank Turner. Welcome to Tales from No Man's Land, a podcast that accompanies my album, No Man's Land. It's about 13 women from history who you probably haven't heard of, but definitely should have. Their stories are fascinating, moving, funny, and most importantly, worth celebrating and sharing. Welcome back to Tales from No Man's Land with me, Frank Turner. If you've missed any episodes so far, you can head to wherever you get your podcast from and listen back at your leisure. This episode is about a woman whose love of music was so powerful that she uprooted her life for it. Her name was Nika Rothschild. Come down, Nika. You don't have to wait outside of the stand-hope for the doctor. Born into a rich banker family, her remarkable spirit led her to fighting for the free French in World War II. But it was a chance discovery on a stopover in New York that would change the course of her life forever. It's said that when she first heard the jazz record Around Midnight by Thelonious Monk, that she became so enamoured by it that she missed her flight home, ended up separating from her husband and her children, ditching the life that she was raised to live, and becoming a jazz patroness in New York in the 1950s jazz bebop scene, and she was affectionately known as the Jazz Baroness. So, today, to join me to discuss Nika's fascinating life is the broadcaster and singer, Jumoke Fashola. Today, I find myself in a basement in London that I'm now very familiar with from making podcasts. But uh, the excitement today is that I'm joined by Jamoke Fashola. Hi, Jamoke. How are you doing? Hi. Hi, Frank. I'm really well. What a pleasure to have you in today. Thank you so much. No, thank you for inviting me. I'm very excited to be here. Well, uh, we're going to get into the story of Nika Rothschild. But before we do that, uh, I was wondering if you could just introduce yourself uh, and tell our listeners about who you are and what you do and why you're here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm here because I fancied coming down to a basement somewhere in the middle of central London. Well, there we go. I present a programme on BBC Radio 3, which is called J to Z, which is all about contemporary jazz music and also looking back at some of the greats of jazz music. Mm-hmm. Um, I also sing jazz, so right. I've spent a lot of time sort of singing jazz and yeah. woodshedding and doing all of that kind of really stuff. Really getting into the nitty gritty. Really getting into yeah. the nitty gritty. And I'm completely obsessed with that sort of jazz era poetry, so do a lot of round poetry right. as okay. well. I don't write it, but I run sure. a thing for an event which is uh, called the Jazz Verse Jukebox, which brings together poets and jazz musicians to kind of have improvisational oh, nights. Wow. Yeah, so it's all good fun. Yeah, well, I mean, we're, we're going to get into all of this, but I mean, one of the things about jazz is that stress on improvisation, yeah. which with my musical background is, there's a little bit of that kind of thing. Occasionally someone's like, take a solo. But it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated and slightly intimidated by the depth of musicality that exists in the jazz world. Mm. Which brings us in a roundabout way to, to our subject today. We're talking about Nika Rothschild. Yes. Uh, are you familiar with Nika Rothschild? Yes, really familiar. I became interested in her, I think, when uh, Carmen Cray, who's one of my favourite singers, released an album called Carmen Sings Monk. And it was all about Thelonious Monk and it was about his music. And then I was like, because up till then I hadn't really been into Monk. I was like, oh, a bit too complicated, didn't like him, (laughs) you know, all of that kind of stuff. He is quite complicated. He is very complicated. And when I first started uh, learning about jazz, I used to be brought, uh, you know, a CD every week by a then boyfriend who would then say, you know, here you are, uh, have a listen to this. And Monk was one of those things. I was like, nah, that's not for me, but I was into Miles Davis and all those yeah. kind of people. Um, and there's a song on there which is Panonica, which of course was written 
for yes. her. She yeah. um, originally uh, was a Rothschild, as you know, yeah. um, and really basically gave it all up for the love she, of jazz and yeah, music. Which is the thing that attracted me to her story. Mm. I mean, personally, I read the, the Hannah Rothschild, who is her great niece, yes. uh, wrote a biography um, of her great aunt. And I think the thing that captures me uh, about her is that sense that she kind of ran away and joined the circus. Yeah. You know, but let's let's get to that. Let's for our listeners, let's be chronological yes, about this. Absolutely. Um so she's a Rothschild. She's yeah. the daughter of uh Charles Rothschild and they are the incredibly wealthy banking family and she was raised in a number of places but there are houses in Tring Park. Yes. One, one of which I've stayed in on Have a you? family holiday because oh, they look rent at them. You. Well no, they rent them out as holiday cottages now. <laughs> oh do they? Um so my missus' family lives in the area and we've we've stayed there and yeah. there are butterflies in all the cases, which is amazing. Mm. Uh because so the story goes that her father was a, a naturalist. Mm-hmm. He collected and discovered lots of different species. He had a giraffe, I think I'm right in saying, yeah. um, running around his park. I mean, he seemed it, to collect all sorts of animals I and mean, apparently had zebras and yeah, all that kind of stuff. Which is yeah. a mad way for her to have grown up mm. in this incredible wealth, this incredibly isolated, socially isolated kind of world. Um, and her father named her after a rare type of moth. Mm. But yeah, and then she, she gets married and she is in the sort of pre-war era. She's living a pretty traditional Rothschild life. Yeah. And then we have the Second World War. Mm. where for lots of people things get interesting Um, and she finds herself hanging out with and indeed fighting for the Free French. She is really extraordinary. I mean, when you think about her background, her family's background in itself, you know, they came from uh, experiencing pogroms and, and really going through a, a really hellish time when yeah. the family first emerged. Uh, and then they became really powerful across Europe. Yeah. And they had all these houses across Europe. Uh, they were at the beck and call of uh, presidents and kings and all yeah, of that yeah. kind of stuff supporting them. So she grew up in an era where everything was at her beck and call. You know, she had butlers, she, you know, she lived in a nursery, she did all of that kind of stuff. But she had the spirit of one who says, no matter what you try and make me, I am still going to be that individual. Right, which is so attractive, I guess is the word. And and I think, you know, the the childhood she had is like, it's, it has material plenty, more than almost anyone could imagine. Yes. But it doesn't necessarily have kind of I guess the word I'm looking for is freedom. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Like I think that she, you know, she married a baron, Baron de Koningswater, you know, and I think that her kind of existence was quite within within the context of being extremely padded and wealthy was yeah. quite circumscribed. Yeah. But then the war breaks out and her husband was French. Um, I think I'm right in saying she got told that she wasn't allowed to go to North Africa to join the Free French and she went anyway. That's right. She kind of escaped and she kind of went anyway and she just had that spirit. I mean, that's yeah. one of the things I admire about her. Obviously, anyone who said no to her... <laughs> Was, 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 were, <laughs> was in trouble. They were on their own. Yeah, you know, she right, was doing right. her thing as much as she'd yeah. like. She has children. Um, yeah. She's married. But we come to the sort of like, you know, the moment in her life, the flip of the switch is that she was, uh, I think I'm right in saying, flying home uh, from somewhere else in America and she yes. had a stopover in New York. Yes, that's right. And her friend Teddy, I understand, brought or asked her, before you go, let me just play, have you heard of Monk, the Lunas Monk? Yeah. And she was like, no, well, let me just play you this track. And the myth goes that she listened to Round Midnight and listened to it 20 times and was like, I'm completely obsessed with this piece. Yeah. And missed her flight and, missed, and, home and, 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 and never went of, back. And never went back. I'm not sure, I'm, I can't quite remember if she ever actually officially got divorced, but she certainly separated from mm. her husband and from her children and was sort of disowned by the family for that, yeah. which within their social context 
you know, it's not hugely surprising, should we say. But yeah, she ends up in New York. And despite being cut off to some degree, she is still within the kind of socioeconomic scale, not doing badly. Mm. Um, and she decides to use her money and her um, uh, her time, should we say, to foster and help out the jazz musicians that she's just discovered that she's fallen in love with. Yes. And, and that's a really interesting thing, because, of course, first of all, there was Monk. Uh, and then she was introduced to him, I think, in Paris, then settled in with him and his family and sort of supported supporting him. Yeah. But she supported so many other right. artists, yes. you know, that whole thing about Miles Davis and, of course, the sad demise of Charlie Parker, Charlie Parker yeah. in her apartment, which, of course, led to the very first big scandal yeah. that surrounded her, because I think she was at the Stanhope Hotel. Yes, she was, yeah, and he died on her sofa. Mm. Um, and, you know, she's a white woman in New York in the 1950s, and a black jazz musician dies in her apartment. This yeah. is a major scandal. Yes. Be- before the scandal, she has this sort of slightly halcyon period. One one of the things I read, she was known by some people as the only white woman in Harlem. Um, and apparently she had like a, she had a Bentley yes. uh, that she used to kind of like park slash crash uh, into the front of these like uh, subterranean jazz clubs. Yeah. And she'd get out in a fur coat and she had, apparently she kept a bottle of whiskey in a Bible that she'd cut the pages out of the middle yes. of so that if she got stopped, uh, she'd be all right. Um, and, you know, and she's she's immersing herself in the jazz world and in this music. And she's not a musician herself. No, she's not. And I mean, some people are slightly less kind about her immersion into the jazz world yeah. where they talk about her being the ultimate groupie uh, and yeah. how, you know, she's hanging around with these musicians. But when you think about where she emerged from and the time at which she emerged, I mean, she wasn't going to get any joy. I mean, it's not like being a groupie for the Rolling Stones or something. Right. It's, it's just it's, being a groupie for musicians who at that time weren't very well known. Right. And when, yeah, exactly. She's not gaining any kind of social benefit mm. from doing this in, in the grand scheme of things. And also, I think it's quite important to say that from everything that I've read, uh, there's not really any suggestion of any sexual links between her and the people that she was impressed with. Her, her love for the music seems quite pure. Yes. Um, there are reading around the subject and reading uh, Hannah Rothschild's book. Yeah. Of course, she talks about Nellie, who is Thelonious Monk's wife, sitting alongside Nika at one point. Yeah. They're all together. Yeah. So it sounds like her passion really was about the music right. and about ensuring that those musicians were supported in the best way they sure. could be. Which she did. So, so as we say, so Charlie Parker dies in her apartment. One of the other things is there was this whole thing about the cabaret card, yes. which is a fascinating piece of music history in and of itself, which is in the post-war era when things quite heavily unionised, as a musician, you have to have a cabaret card to be able to play. And Monk had lost his cabaret card because of a drugs bust. Yes, I think. And then also he lost it for like seven years. I mean, he lost it for a really long time. Which is, I mean, it's mad to think that you can't play. You can't play. One of the greatest musicians of his era was given effectively a seven-year ban from performing in public. I mean, there's nothing like that today. Thankfully, Mm. I should say. Um, But so she worked quite hard using her sort of connections and indeed, let's be honest, her kind of skin colour, shall we say, to uh, get his cabaret card back successfully. And then they were driving Mm. to Baltimore together and there was weed in the car and they got pulled over and she took the rap. Yeah, she took the rap. I mean, the story goes that apparently a monk uh, was suffering from prostate problems. So it was a very long drive for them. uh, (laughs) And at one point he decided... 
I need I need to go to the bathroom. Yeah, right. I need to go to the bathroom. <laughs> I'd imagine he used a different expression for that, but let's carry <laughs> well, on let's with carry this. On. I need to go to the bathroom. <laughs> and so she's driving, trying to find somewhere because they're outside the line of the sort of New York hip where you sure. you know you could share bathrooms black and white. Maryland is across it, the Mason Dixon line. Exactly. Yeah. So she's then trying to find somewhere. She finally finds somewhere, some motel parks, you know, as she does, sort of on the pavement and says, you know, and he just walks in, goes to use the bathroom, comes out, speaks to the receptionist and just simply says the word water. Now, my understanding is he was quite difficult to understand. He had his own peculiar way of speaking. um, And so if you were new to his nuances, you would find it difficult. The receptionist then called the police and yada, yada. And then lots happened where they seized the car and they, you know, they charged her, etc. Yeah, totally. And it's and again, it's another scandal. But Mm. she um, I think almost a bigger scandal because she was the one who claimed possession of the drugs that were found. So she's the one who actually got charged with something. It's not just that a musician's had drugs in her apartment when I th- think I'm right in saying she wasn't there when Charlie Parker actually died. But th- in this instance, you know, she's arrested. Mm. Um, and the Rothschild family are careful about their reputation yeah. internationally. Initially, she was charged. She was brought up before the judges. She was sentenced. Then their lawyer, I believe, the Rothschilds then gathered round and said, you know, sure. this is, these are our people. You know, this is the yeah, person. Sure. So yeah. we are not going to let her sort of. And so the, the lawyer, I think, said he's going to take it to the Supreme Court and all of that kind of stuff. Stuff, but her reputation was severely tarnished for that. Yes. And interestingly enough, I mean, she had it in the back of the car, but it wasn't like she was smoking or anything sure, like that. Sure, yeah, but I mean, it's, it's, I mean, even today, yeah. uh, you know, I wouldn't want to be stopped by cops no. in a car in the States with anything illegal anywhere no. around it, and, and I'm white, do you know what I mean? So, uh, <laughs> But yeah, so, uh, and then she sort of then enters a kind of a, a dotage, I think I'm right in saying, in the sense that she, she lives out the rest of her life in New York. Um, uh, she lives in an apartment with lots of cats, I think yes, I'm right in saying. Yes, apparently she had over 100 cats. It was called the I mean, cat house or something. I've got so. one, and that's enough. <laughs> I might get a second, but I mean, a hundred. That's just bedlam. Um, well, she loved them. She I'm loved the sure cats. She, she loves the cats. She loved the jazz musicians. How did she know what they were all called? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> so she lives out there. And, and one of the things that I wanted to kind of get into in terms of the general vibe of the song that I wrote, because this is the thing, in terms of writing this record, I, I read about lots and lots and lots of people who mm. I, I was potentially going to write about, but you have to find your kind of emotional way into your subject matter and I didn't want to just kind of read out a bunch of dates and facts you know over a guitar part that seemed kind of dull to me so and the the thing was I feel like she ended up in this kind of a disappointed end of her life in the sense that a lot of the jazz scene slightly moved on from her I feel well we also have to put it into context that by the 1980s jazz had changed sure and music had changed a lot so whereas I suppose in the 1950s early 60s she might have been able to drive her Bentley to a jazz and and everybody would have known exactly who she was a lot of those musicians had passed sure. and a lot of the music had changed. Yes. So she wouldn't have had the same sort of acclaim. And I'm not saying that she was after acclaim, yeah. but I think that recognition of her role sure. for yeah. those musicians yeah. probably at that time wasn't as yeah. recognised as and before. W- well, am I right in saying she was something of a kind of a purist as well, a bebop purist, yeah. I should say? Yeah, she was completely obsessed with bebop. And, yeah. and it's understandable because that time period was a real resurgence in jazz. So you'd come out of the sort of swing, you know, and all that. And you'd gone into a time where jazz musicians were 
experimenting and they weren't experimenting to play a record, you know, or to get money. They were experimenting and doing really unique things. Interestingly enough, Monk, who, of course, she was his greatest patron, wasn't understood initially. You know, lots of of musicians go, I don't understand what Monk's all about, you know, leave him to one side, you know. So it took a while for him to become this person that we now talk about as the genius. Yeah, I mean, I have to say my own taste in jazz uh, is... Sparing. <laughs> I mean, well, I've got. I, it's funny. I've got two ends of jazz for me. Like on the one hand, I absolutely adore Chet Baker sings yeah. and that kind of croony yes. end of things. Um, and there is a little part of me that wants to make a kind of Chet Baker sings Ooh. type record one day. Um, uh, and then at the other end, you know, I grew up listening to a lot of extreme kind of metal and thrash yeah. and that kind of thing. And then got into Ornette Coleman and like later period Coltrane because I was interested in extremity, right. should we say, within music and and you know like Mr. Mars and stuff yes. like that, like which is bananas. Yeah. Uh, um, but sort of the middle bit of jazz is slightly mysterious to me. And, and one of the things that was fun with this song is because I wanted to kind of try and write a jazz tune. Oh, hello. <laughs> yeah, no, right, exactly. And, and, and uh, one of the things, you know, so I'm, 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 I have my guitar here. Okay, mind. So, good. you know, I start, started, started with a major seven chord. Nice. You know, and then went to a, another major seven chord. There we go. And, uh, you know, and then probably I think I spent about six months just doing this, kind of going... It has to go somewhere else. And actually what I did is I looked up the chords to Around Midnight yeah. because it's such an important uh, part of Nika's story. Yes. Now, I don't know what any of the following four chords I'm about okay. to play are called, yeah. uh, but it's this one. Yes. And then it's that one. Yes. And then it's... Yeah. Which I think I'm right in saying are the first four chords yeah, around so midnight. Yeah, so it begins to tell round midnight, round midnight. I do very well. See, it's a really, I mean, it's such a crunchy. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Song with oh, all so many layers. We, we nearly formed a band. We just nearly. Then. Formed... <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was close. No, it's it was nearly magic in the I'm studio. I'm telling you, I am still waiting. I, I, it's it's going to be a few years before I sing round midnight for sure. Okay. Well, I I, I did. I've only learn the first four chords and there are approximately a gazillion Um, so I need a few years as well but why don't we reconvene in a few years time and we can do a cover of that song absolutely we can do a cover of that song you're on we're shaking hands metaphorically excellent I love it but so so yes I sort of borrowed those four chords and then once I got those it kind of like freed me up to kind of like go off piste and like there's a lot of in in my song there's a few kind of key changes that are unusual by my standards like going from major chords to minor chords to sevens and stuff like this Um, and you know I'm quite sort of proud of the fact that I managed to get from a G major verse to a G minor chorus. Yeah! Well, and, you know, and, and and there's that chord, which I don't know what it's called, but it's great. But what? But then how do you decide how to write it? Because that's the, you know, the lyric is, you know, I listened to the song and I was like, wow, how did he distill that life into well, three I mean, and a half minutes? I mean, that's yeah. really impressive. Well, the first thing to say is that obviously part of the reason why we're doing this podcast series and why we, you and I are chatting today is that there is a danger in trying to distill a life into three and a half yeah. minutes of being, I guess, uh, blasé or disrespectful in some way. Do you know what I mean? It's like, you know, we're talking about a real person's life and I think it's important to discuss that. Also, I mean, particularly with this song, a lot of the lyrics are very kind of specific, you know, to life events of hers. And uh, I want people to, and and we've actually covered most of them, but, you know, things about like, you know, the five spot and the Stanhope and Charlie Parker and the cabaret card and all this kind of thing. So, you know, it's kind of cool to sort of explain what it is I'm chatting about with all that. I mean, what I love about what you've done with this particular song is 
that you have followed in the footsteps of the great. There are a lot of songs that have been written about her and, yeah. and, and it's lovely to see because, of course, for many of those musicians, the only thing they had to offer was their was music, yeah. was a song. Which is immortality in its way. But then at the same time, I mean, like, what do you offer a Rothschild? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's just kind of like, I got you yeah. a bottle of wine. Yes, yes, <laughs> that's know, true. You know, but I mean, it's, it's it's a wonderful thing. And actually, there's a really, really funny bit of like serendipity in here, or sort of like closing the circle, because uh, one of the bands that has written a song about her, which is really off reservations, is a band called Oxbow. Okay. Um, and Oxbow are like an art hardcore band that I love. Wow. Um, and like they're seriously extreme noise, kind of jazz noise. <laughs> Uh, I, I love them. I think they're incredible. And I've seen them live a bunch. And they're one of the most threatening live bands you'll ever see in your life in the best possible way. They're punk as hell. But um, they wrote a song uh, called Panonica and put that out in 1991, which I'd sort of missed, I must admit, until really? I got the notes for this episode. I mean, <laughs> it's like, damn, I should have listened yeah. to it. But in a way, it's good that you didn't listen to that. Yeah. I mean, I like the, um, the the lyrics were set to Monk's Panonica. So the beginning of it goes softer than silk. And as warm as warm milk, light as air, and able to fly. You know, and it's just that yeah. whole thing where people have taken, I suppose, something that they they treasure and have found yeah. ways into it. And I think that yeah. what that's a real legacy for Nika, that lots of people sure. are going, I have entered this world essentially because of you, because a lot of those yeah. musicians would may not be who we know today so they could you know and she was one of sure. those people who went and searched for it you know when they were in drug dens and they were all she would always go yeah, and yeah, find yeah. the down to earth musician and drag them out and all that kind of stuff yeah. so you know, she's she led a marvelous life but let us not forget that that life was fueled or supported by an inheritance that allowed her to do oh that. of course yes absolutely she's coming from a place of enormous privilege um uh, but it, but she's choosing to use that privilege yeah. for something other than accumulating more yeah. wealth or yeah. whatever you know um and i think there's something admirable in that. I had this sort of sense in reading about her that, like, she died a slightly disappointed woman. You know, the jazz scene has moved on. A lot of the people she knew died. She, she ends up in a kind of a flat. Um, Hannah Rothschild writes about kind of going to visit her as a teenager. Yeah. And she's this slightly crazy old lady with a hundred cats who doesn't really go out to that many jazz shows anymore and just has her records. And and, and she had an apartment in Brooklyn that overlooked Manhattan um, and all this kind of thing. And and part of my motivation for the song is that, like, as much as, as we've mentioned, she has been commemorated in many, many jazz pieces of music I felt like it doesn't hurt to uh, to throw one more on the pile yeah. and you know my audience is not a stereotypically jazz audience yeah, to sure. put it politely mm-hmm. you know uh, and I wanted to just write a song that's almost it's supposed to be like a generous song like it's a calming hand on the shoulder just saying hey you know what it's okay. You did a great thing, and you will be remembered. But for why it. do you start with the words "calm down"? I think that's because of that image that I had of her just kind of slightly sitting in her apartment at the end of her days, kind of going, "Was it worth, worth it? it?" Do you know what I mean? And it's like, yeah, it absolutely was. And one of my favorite sayings of hers that I managed to crowbar into the songs is, "Throw your heart over the fence, and the rest will follow." Wow! And it's just such a beautiful. I mean, as a, a message for life. Mm. I mean, come on, you know, like what a beautiful thing to say and what a beautiful thing to do with your life. How long did it take you to write the song? 
a while. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, one thing we haven't discussed yet. Um, uh, I mean, I did. I, I remember I was driving the guys in my um, my touring, uh, my regular band, The Sleeping Souls. I thought nuts. you were going to say Bentley for a minute. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I was driving them slightly nuts because it kind of in sound checks every day. I, I kind of like I'd add like one chord at a time. Do you know what I mean? I'd be like, oh, today I've got to the the F sharp minor, um, and they'd just be like. Oh my God, could you stop playing that riff? It's driving everybody nuts. So when we came to the studio, this was one of the most fun parts for it. So I wanted to have kind of like a jazz feel for the song. And um, so the drama that we had in the studio is a woman called Holly Madge, plays for a rock band called Locke. And I said, can you handle jazz? And she was like, no problem. Totally in my wheelhouse. So she played this beautiful drum part. Um, and then I played the guitar. And then we had Andrew Goldsworthy, who's from Paloma Faith's band, mm-hmm. came down and played some beautiful jazzy upright, should we say. Uh, but then, you know, I knew I wanted to have have a horn section yes. on it and I was just like I don't really know any jazz horn players so I went to Facebook <laughs> and asked really? my friends yeah I just asked my friends does anyone know any jazz horn sections and through quite a long and complicated series of email chains of somebody who was like yes I do play this but I'm not free no I don't play this but I know someone who does kind of thing I ended up getting three women from the West End who play jazz well they play horns in musicals Okay, and uh, it's interesting to, to say because as we were discussing before we started this, I don't read music mm-hmm. um, and I play by ear, but I also, my background is kind of punk and then country and then folk. You know, right. it's quite sort of melodically within the margins, should we say? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Song, songs tend to stay in the same key. If you've got five chords in a song, you're in wild territory. So these guys came down to the studio. I'd looked up the names of all the chords and I wrote them down on a piece of paper and I put them in front of them. And I'd sent them, you know, the, the kind of the rough mix of the sure. song and everything. And I was like, I just, I don't really have a part. I just want you guys to kind of like, to jazz over it. <laughs> 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 you know what I mean? And like, uh, and, and I was like, I just wanted to feel like the five spot um, in 1952, you know, yeah. and just play. And they kind of went, okay. And I thought to myself, really? Did you get what I meant by mm. that? And we just rolled tape and they had the chord sections, chord charts in front of them. And it's the first take was just gravy. Wow. Butter, should yeah. we say. Buttery gravy. Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, Catherine Marks, who produced the record, and I stood in the control room and whispered to each other, look. Real musicians. <laughs> I have to give props to all jazz musicians because yeah. they are really, and it doesn't matter what sort of genre within jazz, yeah. you know, contemporary to whatever, they are really the masters of improvisation. Oh, that, yeah. that idea of saying, here are five chords, which actually harks back to a lot of the greats, you know, yeah. Charlie Parker and Monk, and they would just literally give you a piece of paper, here yeah. you go, and off the band would go. I mean, they yeah. spend so much time woodshedding that actually to go, right. here's the well, chords, that's yeah. it. And it kind of like, it almost gives me kind of philosophical pause in my own kind of thinking of myself as a musician because I can't really do that. There's a kind of purity to, you know, anyone, let's say Coltrane or whoever or Parker, you know, just kind of like expressing themselves in the moment in this incredibly pure way. Mm-hmm. It's a form of musicality that I don't really possess. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm slightly intimidated by almost. But I think it's really important to to recognise that music in all forms does offer something to people. So, oh, yeah. you know, so the, the fact that I'm, for instance, obsessed with jazz means that my neighbour might be listening to the same piece of music and go, what on earth is that? I oh, mean, yeah. you know, so of you've course. got that. I think for everybody listening to music, the most important thing is about what people are communicating. Of course. It's interesting to hear this because, of course, initially when I thought, well, how are you going to write about Nika? You 
you know, she's like jazz, you know. And then yeah. I heard it and I was like, actually, that makes sense because there would have been people outside the sphere and all they would have known of her was the stories, etc. Sure. And to try and get a handle on that, that's what I think you've done, is to try and get a handle on a life that was lived with this kind of passion. Yeah. Well, and this is the thing. I mean, I don't want to get overly self-analytical, auto-Freudian, should we say. <laughs> you know, but like, I think one of the things that attracts me about the story, uh, because, you know, I, I, I come from a comfortable family, do you know what I mean? And I, I discovered punk rock when I was a kid and I got on the train, I went to squat shows and got tattoos and my mother was extremely disappointed. And, and here I still am doing this, touring, you know, 20 one years after I started wow. um, and and my mum's on board now you'll be pleased to hear <laughs> um, I used the expression kind of flippantly earlier but the, the idea of her kind of like running away and joining the circus yeah. like you can't put aside the fact of her privilege and her wealth and the fact that, that she obviously had this enormous safety net yes. it wasn't like she was kind of necessarily financially or materially risking her, everything by doing this but in terms of just kind of running away and following a passion with this purity and this mm. dedication that I, is something I can identify with. Sure. And, and and it's something to be celebrated. And I think in telling her story, again, it passes it down the generations. And I wouldn't be surprised that you've written it in one way, uh, yeah. which you will obviously perform. But I wouldn't be surprised if a, you know, a jazz musician came along and said, oh, I like what Frank has oh, done here. You know, let that, me just that, tweak it a yeah. bit. Not tweak it, no, but no, just no, no, let no. me just put my own interpretation I, if on If somebody it. ever did that, I would be filled with more joy than you can imagine. <laughs> Um, it's a. F- I mean, for, because I think this is where we get back to talking about all music. Yeah, it's for sharing. Yes, it That's is. That's the point, you know. And like, I quite often get people asking me, "Is it okay if I cover one of your songs, either at one of my shows or an open mic night, or whatever?" And I'm like, "Why are you yeah. asking? Aww. Do it. Write another verse. Claim yeah. you wrote it. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> just crack on." And uh, that's you know? lovely to know because some musicians are a bit like, "No, don't touch my music. It's for no, me and for, me alone." Oh, well, and 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 the thing is, obviously, they have the right to say that about their own music, and that's fine. But for me, I feel like music is it's communication it's, yeah. and it should be about sharing yeah. and music should be a dialogue not a monologue in mm. my opinion so if somebody was to take this song any jazz musicians listening to this you want to have a crack at it please do it would fill me with enormous joy well why don't we hear it are we going to hear um, yeah, it yeah well, if you'd hear like to hear I it like I would like to I'd like it. to play it um, I'm, I'm going to see how my tour voice is doing today but we'll give it a try Jim okay just before I play this I have to warn you there right. is a section in the middle of the song which approaches scat ooh um, I'm excited which you know if you told me 10 years ago I was going to put out a record with some scatting on but, but essentially what happened was it originally I was just singing how I thought the trumpet solo should go okay. and then when Nettie Brown who played trumpet on the record came in she was like I mean I could play that or I could play something much better so she did and then Catherine the producer left the original bit in so there's kind of me Singing a trumpet Noodling. line. Yeah. Oh, nice. Which, yeah, which oh, is... Oh, we're going to hear that. Yeah, this is definitely new virgin territory for me as a musician, but uh, this is my song, Nika, and it goes something like this. Come down, Nika... You don't have to wait outside of the stand home for the doctor. Charlie Parker woke up in your apartment on the sofa and he'll be fine once he's walked it off and he'll meet you in the front row of the fire spot around midnight. 
load up the Bentley Bring the hollowed out Bible with the whiskey 52nd Street No phone calls from the cops or from your family Can reach you, they all know you You're famous in your fur coat With the loneliness, the high priest and the baroness The cats all called you a butterfly But that's not quite right Nonica is a moth known to come alive In the dark of night she might flutter by your table She might whisper something secret in your ear You only need to hear one piece of advice Each of us only gets one life Calm down, Nika. You don't have to drive on down to Baltimore anymore. The cabaret cart's waiting in the morning. Mail your mercy missions for musicians. Didn't fail the young years, they are over. You're forever black, brown, beige, the bebop baroness. Ba da 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 the cats they called you a butterfly but that's not quite right Nonica is a moth known to come alive In the dark of night she might flutter by your table She might whisper something secret in your ear You only need to hear one piece of advice Each of us only gets one life Nika spent her spine, she was freer than the French She always said, just listen to the music man And throw your heart over the fence And the rest will follow Thank you very much. <laughs>
I didn't screw it up too badly. No, there was one. There, well, this is the thing. There was one chord which I slightly missed, and it's jazz. And so, it's you know. jazz. <laughs> leave it all. Leave it all at the foot of jazz. What a great little song. I Thank mean, you something very that's much. a real tribute to her, and I yeah. think tells her story so well. Yeah. Well, hopefully, and now that people can listen to this podcast, uh, I did, one of the other things I was going to say, like um, this is, I say this as a joke, but it's possibly true. There are more chords in that song than there are on my first album. Uh, <laughs> I don't know whether that's actually true, but uh, but no, I mean, it's you know, hopefully, it's a it's a it's a heartfelt and respectful tribute to a woman who I think that we should remember, Indeed. and and through her, the music that she loved and that she made her life. Well, if she made you add more chords to your repertoire, she's done her job. Thank you, massive thank you to Jamoke for that chat. That's one of my favourite chats we've had on the podcast. When she started singing, I lost my mind. Uh, and I sincerely hope that at some point in the future she does actually attempt to version the song herself with some of her jazz friends. That would be amazing. You can subscribe to the podcast. You can review the podcast. And I would appreciate it both enormously. It really does help spread the word. You can find the song Nika wherever you get your music from. And in fact, you can now buy or stream the entire album No Man's Land as it is out now. For the next episode, we will be discussing one of the darker characters on the record, the female serial killer, Nanny Doss. This episode of Tales from No Man's Land was produced by Hayley Clark. The executive producer was Peggy Sutton. Additional production work was done by Paul Smith, Steve Ackerman, Gully Lawrence Tickle, Josh Gibbs and Charlie Kaplow. Tales from No Man's Land is produced by me, Frank Turner, Extra Recordings and something else. <laughs>